Welcome to Glam City. On Glam City, we speak to the hard-working people in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. I'm Kira Lindsay. I'm a historian based at the Australian Centre of Public History at UTS. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Irish, who's a Sydney-based historian and archaeologist. Paul is the author of Hidden in Plain View, the Aboriginal people of coastal Sydney, which explores the history of Aboriginal people in Sydney, their interactions with early colonists, and it makes the argument that Aboriginal people were always here, even if, historically speaking, they were often hidden in plain view. So, Paul, welcome and thanks heaps for coming along. Oh, thanks for having me. I love your book. I think I... I um, ate the whole thing whole on one day in a weekend and I've covered it with post-it notes. I'd love you to um, tell the listeners a little bit more about this book and if there was um, a kind of specific question that you had when you started to do the research. Yeah, look, I think it sort of evolved over time and really ultimately um, I tried to write this book as the kind of book I wished I'd had when I was growing up in Sydney because like many people and I don't have Aboriginal ancestry myself, um, um, but we're, we're not made aware of this history where it, it's literally all around us, but we, we're just not aware that it's there. And I wanted to write something that was um, didn't assume that people already had knowledge or didn't kind of um, put them down for not having that knowledge or anything like that, but just tried to explain, you know, that a bit of that journey as well. Um, in my case, I came to history actually via archaeology and studying archaeology at Sydney University. I was walking past the block every day on my way to archaeology lectures and I was just completely disconnected uh, from that idea of the Aboriginal past and the Aboriginal present. I just thought that I was studying something abstract, this archaeological past that was the real Aboriginal Australia and didn't think at all about the people living at the block and what their background might be, their ancestry, their connection potentially to places I was studying. So that's a pretty common thing, I think. I mean, even for people who are not interested in the past, I think we kind of divide our view of Aboriginal Australia into something that's very much about authenticity. You know, we, we use shorthands like remote communities and urban communities as though that means something about their Aboriginality or their connection. And of course, like different groups have different backgrounds and histories but I think it, it's in our minds where we're stuck in this mindset of um, what's authentic and what's not and at the heart of that is the idea that Aboriginal people can't change without losing their Aboriginality without losing their connection and you can't look at a, a place like Sydney or, or anywhere in Australia over the last couple of centuries and see a people that are completely unchanged but that doesn't mean that they're not mm. Aboriginal. It doesn't mean they've lost connection. Um, and I think that's one of the key reasons why that story's been hidden for so long. So I sort of inherited that mindset and I started working as an archaeologist thinking I was the one digging up the past, the real past, but I was working with Aboriginal people. Often they were people f not from Sydney, and that's where most of my work was. Um, but I was really interested in their stories, their family stories of how, you know, their families, immediate families, but also their ancestors had lived and how they'd come to be in Sydney and things like that. And around the same time, I started to get to know Aboriginal people from the La Perouse community and realised that their connection had much deeper roots in, in Sydney itself. And I just found myself asking, well, why didn't I know this? 
the answer was that the information is actually there. It's certainly in the, the knowledge of community members themselves, and it's certainly scattered around in archives and newspapers and things like that. But it's not a story that has been kind of assembled and, I guess, assimilated into our way of considering history. You know, in, in cities particularly, um, we tend to think of, of cities as being non-Aboriginal places, and there's a growing... Uh, body of work, you know, my own research included, that is just showing that it's completely not the case and it's never been the case. And there is in colonial history, because I'm a kind of colonial historian, uh, a sort of there was a general argument that Aboriginal people were moved out of Sydney by the 1840s, but you've been able to show with this book that that's not the case at all, that there were people coming in and going and that there were kind of trade routes if you like, that people were using, coastal Aboriginal groups were using to move in and out of Sydney on a regular basis. Yeah, I think part of that idea of authenticity is definitely there. So the invisibility is partly because by the 1830s, 1840s, there's not a lot of Aboriginal people living in Sydney who were born before Europeans arrived and were considered to be, you know, completely traditional people in whatever that means. And there's a growing number of people with mixed ancestry as well, and they were often not seen as Aboriginal. And then the third thing which you alluded to as well is is the movement of people. You know, mm. they, they weren't just from Sydney. They had connections in a few different places but if they were seen to come from somewhere else they were never seen as returning home they were always seen as being from somewhere else Mm. and those things have led to this view that there were no people left in Sydney or, or anyone that was there was somehow also sort of pushed to the side and having to live in a in a way that was completely at the whim of of colonial Sydney whereas you know, when you look more closely at people, you see that they had, um, to a large extent, some control over their activities and their lives. So a big part of your book is really making the case for the fact that all cultures are organic and that we can see Aboriginal people in Sydney negotiating change in a lot of different ways, but actually really successfully. I wonder if there's one or two stories from the book that you can share with us to illustrate that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing I'd say too is that that's something that I found quite a natural idea coming from archaeology because I think archaeologists um, have not been great at explaining this to Australia. We, we've tended the the messages that most of Australians have have kind of gleaned from archaeology is is ancient. You know, the the oldest Lake Mungo and you know. The, 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 the oldest dates of a site or something like that. But what the archaeological record shows us is an amazing record all over the continent of people dealing with change, whether it's climatic and, you know, change or technological change, interacting with other groups, trading, all of these things are an amazing record of people who've always lived with change. Isn't there a fantastic example in your book of uh, Aboriginal people using umbrellas, upside down mm. umbrellas for fishing? I thought that was a fantastic example. Well, it is one of my um, favourite pieces of information. It's just a recollection from the 1930s of an an elderly non-Aboriginal man who'd lived in the eastern suburbs and is recalling his childhood in the 1870s and seeing Aboriginal people spearfishing on the rocks at Rose Bay. Um, using their traditional multi-pronged fishing spear, but the the prongs um, were swapped out for umbrella wires. And in more recent times, uh, because community members still make them today, um, things like pram spokes have been used. I mean, that's, that's just culture. That's continuity. That's not... 
um, something ceasing. And in fact, it was an artifact, uh, a tool exactly like that, that got me interested in this story. Back in 2000, I was doing some work actually at the, what was then called the Centennial Bakery Museum. It's now the St. George Regional Museum. It was in an old bakery building, hence the name. And I was working on a NADOC week exhibition. And in their collections, they had um, a bundi or a, a wooden club uh, that was of sort of traditional style from Sydney, but it had horseshoe nails embedded in the, the head of the club. So it was absolutely a traditional artifact, but also quite clearly a hybrid as well. And that would have been interesting enough in itself, but at the same time, I met a senior Durrell man from the La Perouse community, Dr. Shane Williams, who whose family had lived nearby at a place called Saltpan Creek. And that artifact, that club came from that camp that was there until the 1930s and these things are they're not anomalies they're just we've just kind of cast them to one side because they don't fit the picture of the you know unchanged traditional way of life that we like to pretend is the only you know way of life when, when it comes to Aboriginal yeah, people. Yeah and, and maybe also some romantic suppositions in there mm. that you know that are tied up with those notions of authenticity that you know these objects have to be only using X, Y and Z materials yeah, whereas in fact the real spirit of innovation that lies in all culturals, cultures being organic is in picking up new materials Absolutely, and finding yeah. out yeah. ways to and, make And we work. see that archaeologically with, you know, it, it might be new types of artefact that get made out of stone or shell or bone. Um, but we also see it with, with language. I mean, language is another thing that all peoples share and language changes all the time, but it doesn't mean that it ceases to become our language. We just adapt it to new circumstances. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it really is something where you start, if you start to see people's act actions from that perspective you also cease to see them as passive victims of of colonial sydney and it's not by any means to suggest that aboriginal people had an easy time of it i mean they were the traumatized survivors of of invasion and disease epidemics and things which makes their story all the more remarkable that they not only held to their culture and connection but found a way to negotiate a very rapidly changing and new environment and still stay in Sydney. Tell us one or two stories. Um, you know, one of my favourites is um, Cora Gooseberry's story um, and also Marut's, mm. um, but you might have your own favourites. Oh, look, yeah, but look, Marut is a, a fascinating individual. He was born in the 1790s, um, just after the smallpox epidemic hit Sydney, mm. and his parents were from Botany Bay, and he grew up around Botany Bay, and as far as we can tell, he was a, a traditional owner of that, that area. Um, but he, uh, as a young man, lived with Europeans and went off on whaling and sealing ships, which quite a few Aboriginal men and I think some Aboriginal women did as well. Um, but when he came back to Sydney, as a you know, probably in his thirties, he decided to uh, settle down on the shores of Botany Bay on his his traditional country and start a fishing business with his wife. Um, sadly, we don't know his wife's name, um, but we know that she was also from that area. And they built a hut for themselves on the shores of Botany Bay near Bunurong Creek, sort mm. of right in the middle of Port, where Port Botany is now. Um, I went looking for it one weekend and I couldn't find it. You said it was near the um, the old hotel there, didn't you? Uh, no, that's so? a different one. That's that's okay. where he was actually buried, and oh, um, okay. uh, and and that's part of his story. You know, he started to this fishing business with his wife, but he also staked out 10 acres of land. And this is one of the really interesting things about Sydney too, is that we, when we say the word Sydney, we assume 
some kind of big city like we have now. Mm. And Sydney in the 19th century meant a very different thing. And, and the coastal part of Sydney is rocky and swampy and sandy. It's not particularly, uh, for, for a very long time, wasn't particularly intensively used by Europeans. There certainly was people around and the land was technically granted to or, or sold to, to people. Um, but in the 1830s, Marut could mark out 10 acres of land, build a hut on it, and then go into the, the uh, governor and say, I want that land. And he was... Mm. Uh, given that land for the rest of his life. So. Because he was running fishing expeditions, wasn't he, and had a mm. kind of business um, associated with a local hotel. With, yeah, it, so there's this uh, hotel, hotel. Yeah, the hotel started up as a kind of pleasure ground hotel for people in hotel, Sydney. Wasn't yeah, it? and that and building still is, is still there. Yeah. Um, and and as far as we know, he was buried in an Aboriginal burial ground that was maintained mm. in just next to the hotel for quite a few decades after mm. his death. But he um, he also rented out some other huts that he built on his land to white farmers and fishermen. So he was collecting a weekly rent. Mm. He appears on the City of Sydney or the Sydney Council's first um, assessment of, of um, landlords in the 1840s. So he was, you know, really someone who was harnessing his traditional connections, his traditional knowledge, but doing it in a way that allowed him to live as much as possible on his own terms. And I think that's a very common aspect. And Cora Gooseberry is another person who who had those really deep connections, but was not afraid to interact to kind of... um, I mean, arguably, Aboriginal people had to interact with the colony. That's not really the point. The point is how they chose to do that and the fact that they did have choice to some degree. You know, they mm. were often living in places that they they wanted to live. It's not to say all areas were open to them or anything like that. But I think if we if we cease to see people as victims that were forced to live somewhere or, or kind of... Uh, and that's quite tempting to do because once we get to the 20th century across New South Wales, you know, we're in an era of segregation of government enforced reserves and, and mm. a, a real kind of prison system in some ways mm. a, around New South Wales. So we imagine that that must stretch back to 1788. Mm. Um But it, it doesn't. You know, it if doesn't. we go back before mm. that system was created, Aboriginal people in some cases, and Sydney is one of them in coastal Sydney, had a greater capacity to shape their own lives, and that's really important. Yeah, and there were um, quite close friendships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people Mm. within the city of Sydney. You're listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SCR.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. (laughs) This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SCR. And on this episode, we're talking to Paul Irish, a Sydney-based historian and archaeologist. And we're going to talk about the sources that you brought together um, to do this research on your fabulous book, Hidden in Plain View. So what you find? Where'd you find it? And what you do with it? Well, it, gets, it was a, a very... Look, I guess all historians would say that their archives are very fragmented and it takes a lot of hard work, and of course it does, um, whether you're telling a very small story or a big one. I guess I came to this... Uh, having read, got curious about the story of, of Aboriginal Sydney from Aboriginal colleagues and, and wanting to know more about the the story of like how somewhere like La Perouse came to be, where it was and what it was. And I started reading a lot and there's been, you know, I'm by no means the first person to research this. Um, so there was a lot of 
local histories. Um, you'll find quite often in a local council history or something, there'll be some reminiscence from an elderly resident in the 1950s or something saying, you know, back in when I was younger, there was an Aboriginal family living down the road. And the more of those I read, I started to think, well, are they... You know, is that did that really happen? Is it a bit of a misremembering? Is it what what's going on there? And you know, this coincided in the um, you know around the mid two thousands with um, the digitising of a lot of historical sources, particularly newspapers. Mm. So where it previously might have taken you you know years to sk- skim through all these newspapers, you could now keyword search. And what that did was just start to pull out tiny fragments of information. A newspaper article that might be about something completely different, but mentioned that you know an Aboriginal person was living here, or you know old Jack was you know had a fishing boat or something like that. And you pull enough of those references together, and because of my archaeological background, my initial way into this story was to look at the places so i was looking for references to the different places so it was different places like double bay in the 1840s for example started to emerge in lots of different fragments of information so you started to think okay so there was a camp there in the 1840s and then you start to learn about some of the people that were there and then you're kind of building up a bit of a biography of places and a bit of a biography of individual people and enough of those start to then form a bit of a picture that allows you to trace out what's happening but it was a very slow and organic process you know it went for many years before I started doing it as a PhD and then more intensively while I was doing that and you know even now uh there's more information out there for sure. It's not like I've found it all. Um, What I was really hoping to do with the book was actually to try and um, draw together a bit of a framework so that people could understand the information that they do find. You know, Aboriginal people doing family history, local historians doing local histories are finding this information all the time, but it doesn't always make sense if you don't really know the context of, you know, if you found a reference in the 1850s, for example, to an Aboriginal person and a European having some sort of friendship or whatever, that wouldn't make sense unless you knew that context Mm -hmm. of how Mm -hmm. that came about. So your book will become a sort of um, something that other people can keep adding to and building upon, we hope, you know, an opportunity to put an, a number of fragments together with the idea that more fragments are going to present themselves. Yeah, the and I hope that, um, you know, whether or not that story holds or not is not, you know, the, the important thing because there's so many fascinating individual stories in there mm. that I think that's where... It's certainly where my own interest lies, but also where I think the strongest history is going to emerge is from looking in detail at particular people and, and understanding, sort of turning that big picture story inside out and looking how it was for maybe successive generations of one family to, to live through that you know, yeah. big period of change. You know, earlier we... Um I asked you some questions about some of the people in your book, but you have described yourself previously as a place-based historian, and it seems to me it would be really useful for our wonderful listeners if you could map out some of the key places that you did focus on in the Mm. book. Well, you know, the idea of um, hidden in plain view referred to people. It referred to places and it referred to the archives. You know, in, in all of those cases, the people, the places, the sources have never not been there, mm. but we've just not been seeing them for We weren't for asking reasons. that question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a really good example that I think, um, well, two examples. One one is that sort of colonial landscape in the 19th century. You have 
dotted around Sydney some really um, revered historical buildings, places we call historic houses, somewhere like Vaucluse House or the Joseph Banks Hotel that we mentioned before down at Botany. These are places that are on heritage registers for the role that they played in you know, community, social history, economic history. Um, but they're not usually acknowledged as being places that Aboriginal people related to as well. And so I think it's quite interesting that we often are quite familiar with these places. We just don't realise they have an Aboriginal story. And Vaucluse House is sitting, you know, right on the shores of Vaucluse Bay. The original property covered the whole current-day suburb of Vaucluse. Um, There are Aboriginal sites around there that date back thousands of years. There's a rock engraving out the back of the house. Aboriginal people worked there lived there, camped there through to the 20th century. It's, you know, it's a place that's never really not been an Aboriginal place and still holds significance for people today. And that's a place that thousands of people visit every year. I like Vaucluse House too because it's still, if you go down into Nielsen Park next to it, which is a national park and part of the original grounds of Vaucluse, uh, the Vaucluse estate, you can get a sense of the bush that this these places mm. represent. That landscape persisted for 100 years before it was all subdivided and cleared and that's really crucial to understanding that history. Mm. And the other place that's really crucial but invisible is a place that was called the Government Boatshed down at Circular Quay. And it was a bit of a a camp for Aboriginal people in the late 1870s, 1880s who were living in some of these other places like Vaucluse, Rose Bay, Double Bay. And they came there when they wanted to sell and buy goods in the city. And it was an old abandoned uh, repair shop for government boats. And the importance of it... um, is partly where it is today. It's basically, there's nothing left of the building, but it sits in in the forecourt of the Sydney Opera House. So it's Mm. right in the shadow of somewhere named after an Aboriginal person, Benelong. Um, But we pay so much more attention to someone like Benelong than we do to events that happened 100 years later. Mm. And what happened there was arguably the trigger for the start of what was known as the Aborigines Protection Board in the 1880s, which went on in the early 20th century to enact policies of segregation, followed by assimilation, child removal, all of these things that we've heard and know about and which Aboriginal communities have been so impacted by. But it's that's ground zero for that event and there is nothing there to show you that yeah. it ever existed. And, and Stan's ancestor live there for a time. Yeah, that's too. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paul, you, in your discipline training, you started off as an archaeologist and then you've moved to incorporate history. But my husband's an archaeologist and I'm a historian and we see things pretty differently. So, how do you reconcile these two um, different trainings, different foci? How do you reconcile it and how does it enrich, challenge your work? I think um, there's. it's not necessarily a case of, of finding a way to merge the two, but I guess you borrow things from one and apply it to another. I, I would For example? Say, well, I'd say the, the, the way that I've... Uh, I came to history from viewing the landscape, for example, which is a very archaeological thing to do. It's not unique to archaeology, but, you know, all archaeologists are interested in places and how they fit within a landscape. And uh, I just assumed that was how everyone saw the world and loved maps and, you know, liked finding out where things were and how far apart they were and how they related to each other. Um, But it turns out not so much. But then there is also um, a very strong... uh, 
place-based history sort of movement in history as well of people who are focused on that, not necessarily coming from a, an archaeological background, but just mm. are interested in places, how they evolve, the meaning of those places and how the context of those changes over time. So I did find a body of work within... Um, archaeology and in fact my supervisor at university Maria Nugent um, had worked on a lot of this sort of place-based history but also worked with archaeologists developing his you know merging history and archaeology in quite creative ways as well so it seemed quite natural to me. Okay Um, so there weren't any particular tensions with say how you see an object how you see a time period or anything like that? I think Partly because, you know, I first came to this by doing a sort of archaeological study of what we'd call post-contact archaeology, you know, the the physical remains of Aboriginal life around Sydney, and I realised that there really wasn't a lot beyond the very early colonial years, and partly that was because we didn't really know what we were looking for, Mm. but also because we didn't really know where to look. So... um, I realised that in order to go back to the archaeological, we had to get a better idea of where Aboriginal people were living so we would have some sense of where to look and what we might be looking for. And I guess I've never really gone fully back into that sort of archaeological mode because I got kind of... um, captured by the lives of these people and the extraordinary, you know, Mm. lives that they lived. But I'm very much aware of um, locations as well. I'm I'm not sure how much we will find in terms of archaeological traces of those lives. Um, But I also think that the only way to to do that is to just generate a better awareness of it. I mean, there are a lot of people like me who work as consultants, as archaeologists doing assessments for building projects and things. If those people have got their eyes open and are aware that this archaeology may exist, does exist, then we'll have a chance of finding it. Mm. The problem is that for a long time we've assumed it didn't exist, so we weren't looking for it. So what would you like... um, What do you think is the biggest gift that this book gave you? I think it gave me a a sense of of where I live. Um, I've been living. I grew up sort of in the northwest of Sydney, and I've been living the last twenty years or so, you know, close-ish to Botany Bay on the western side of Botany Bay. And I've always felt a sort of affinity with the bay, or like it's always sort of had a pull. Me um, too. <laughs> and I don't really know why, but I I kind of like the the history of that place as well as the environment. I, I I'm kind of drawn to that, and I guess it's it's allowed me the privilege of learning not just about the Aboriginal history of the of Sydney, but just about Sydney more generally. I kind of feel like I know it in a way that I don't think I ever would have before, and I'm I'm particularly. Uh, please, and I wrote this in in the start of the book as well for my my own children and and for people that are going to come after us to have some way of understanding an aspect of their city that they they might not have had otherwise. There's there's tons of stories like this, Aboriginal and 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 not you know in in a city, and to be able to kind of bring that to people is is pretty satisfying. So it's kind of giving you a deeper sense of belonging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. It feels to me like a, a great place to to wrap up and to say thank you so much for giving us a deeper sense of belonging as well. The, the book is fabulous and I really encourage those of you who haven't yet read it to get it and read it as soon as possible. Um, it really just 
made me feel so excited when I read it. So thank you again, Paul. Now we've come to this part of the show where um, we have a little game that we play, which is what glam event are you going to do in the next fortnight? So what about you, Paul? What are you going to do? Well, look, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to having a really good look at the Living Languages exhibition that's on at the moment at the State Library. I think it's on until May next year and it's been up for a couple of months now and we're in the, uh, the International Year of Indigenous Languages, which is exciting and I work with people who are working at La Perouse in that space as well and, and who had a role in this exhibition. I've had a very quick look at it but I'm, I'm looking forward to having a good look through it. It's it's featuring um, several communities from around and languages from around New South Wales and I think um, is a real eye-opener probably for a lot of people about the role of language in Aboriginal uh, people's lives today and, and the importance of that. Mm. Brilliant. And I'm also going to go to an exhibition which is an ongoing one. This one opened in September and it's going to be open until March 2020, Glam City listeners. So you can get your hot little feet over there as well. It is called How the City Cares and it's um, been based, initiated by the City of Sydney and it's in Customs House in um, Alfred Street in Sydney. And it seems really cool. It's a whole group of sort of city-based artists looking at the fact that the city is not a place of modernist alienation, but actually a place where relationships form mm. and people care for one another, just like we've been sort of looking at with Paul's work today. So I thought that was a nice little bit of continuity as well to remember that cities are places where we live and love as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. This does bring us to a close of um, Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, please head over to the 2SCR website, which is 2SCR.com, and you can also reach us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SCR 107.3. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us on glamcity2scr.com. So if you've got some cool ideas for some other episodes, come on, let us know. Thanks, Paul you were ace and just a reminder which I think is particularly relevant given today's conversation that 2SCR stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation and we acknowledge and we pay our respects and we we think about that ongoing contribution the ongoing relationships for past for present for here now and well into the future 